0: Welcome to episode 18 of the Ikario podcast. In today's episode, we are talking about skill building and rapidly developing a high level of skill in really anything that you set your mind to. This, if you followed other Ikario content, you'll know that this is pretty central to what we do and kind of the Ikario philosophy. It's increase your skills in order to become the kind of person you want to be and to reach your goals. And in this episode, we are talking about it in a slightly more differentiated way where it's not just a level of skill, but we talk about it in terms of your skill ceiling and your skill floor. And this is a concept that we've been using quite a lot in the Acario team. We refer to this quite a lot. And it's a really useful way to think about your skill development and what you ultimately want to do with those skills, which is There's some kind of a performance, right? There's something you do where you bring those skills to bear. And in that moment, having an awareness of the difference between the skill ceiling and the skill floor is really useful. So in this episode, we talk about what this is. What do we mean by skill ceiling and skill floor? And we talk through various strategies of what to actually do in a practical sense in order to raise your skill level, your skill ceiling, and your skill floor. So it's all about skill building, and this is especially useful and especially relevant if your goal is to build a complex skill, such as entrepreneurship, which is really kind of made up of many sub skills. So all of that is coming up right after a few voice messages. We've gotten some voice messages sent in, so we'll read those out and respond to those and then jump into the main part of the episode. You can find the show notes for this episode by going to ikario.com forward slash 018 for episode 18. And you can also find a link there that you can click on to leave your own voice message if you want a question answered in a future podcast. You can also leave a comment there or leave comments on YouTube if you're watching this on YouTube. So with that said, let's get started. So
1: this is the part of the episode now where we read your voice notes out. And I think for today, we actually have two that we're gonna read out today, responding to your questions, your comments, and all your
0: feedback and stuff. So uh, yeah, Shane, line them up. Yeah, let's do it. And so in case you're wondering, you can leave such a message by going to um, no, by anchor.fm forward slash Ikario. There's a message button there where you can leave a voice message like this one from Derek.
2: Hello, Shane. Hello, Ollie. Uh, My name is Derek. Just a little bit of feedback on episode 13, How to Gain a Competitive Advantage. Loved it. Um, Right about the 43-minute mark where Ollie talks about a group of guys modeling emotionally healthy and intelligent behavior together. Uh, So the idea of modeling has been huge in my life as well. Um, It's kind of the concept of if you can't see it, how can you be it? Um, so I really just loved that section there. And also, um, Ollie mentioned something about, well, um, uh, he didn't know, didn't know if he would be able to solve all these problems alone or solve all these problems or explore all these ideas on his own. And, you know, I would say, well, perhaps it's possible, but why would you want to, why would you want to go it alone? Uh, I think it's so much better and more impactful to explore all these things together as a group.
1: Yeah brilliant that's a great point that is a great point uh yeah. i guess my answer to that is why why would i want to um i guess fear of closeness mm. um fear of people getting too close i mean it's like for the longest time i kind of had this this sort of self image which was i am just uniquely broken in some way and i need to exert a shitload of continuous effort to just put on a front because eventually, no matter what, people will, like, if they get too close, they'll see that, that brokenness, and they'll judge me for it, or basically bad things will happen. Um,
0: so it's, I guess... It's almost that- like a form of imposter syndrome, right? Where you feel like, if people found out who I really am, they would reject me or something. Yeah. And so you, you're like, oh, I'd rather be alone.
1: Without a doubt. Yeah. And it was like, for the longest time, I just looked for, for ways I could solve my own problems without having to risk... Having to step into the fear of like, you know, people get close to you. Yeah, you might let people down. Yeah, you might mm-hmm. be embarrassed, etc. There might be things about you that another person doesn't find particularly easy to deal with, etc. Um, so for for a while, that was that was my reason. I just I just just fear essentially. Uh, but now I'm at a point, obviously through the men's emotional sport group I'm a part of and the Acario team, that now I just I realise that. The, it's the same thing I'm going to have this tattooed on my body one day because it, this, this phrase keeps coming back to bite me in the ass uh, in latin it's uh, insterquilinus invenitor, which is direct translation is in filth it will be found which is the idea that the thing that you're actually searching for the most is in the place that you're least willing to look mm-hmm. and that was totally the, the case for me it's like I was fearing closeness but deep down I really desired it Yeah. Um, so yeah I would never go back uh, problems if i can solve them with the help of people and quicker and bring people closer to me in the process
0: then why wouldn't i do that but yeah mm-hmm. great great point Derek. I appreciate the feedback yeah for me the, some some other things came to mind as he was saying this um one of them is that for sure when you whenever you do things together with people it, things get a bit more messy and a bit more complicated And there's you know the potential for conflict and things like that and so it is Often it can be like the more comfortable, it's like, I'll just not deal with that. I'll just do it myself. And I've had that attitude a lot in my life. And I think that also what you described, you know, kind of the fear of being, of being close to people and so on, I'm sure that's, that also factors into it. But another thing that comes to mind for me is like, I still have this habit, although I'm trying to get better with that but I still have this habit of always being very performance focused and always thinking about the utility and like maximizing utility and so on you know and so when I argue for things like oh let's you know when I argue for you should form a tribe you should form a community and do things together my mind always goes to well where's the where's the greater utility and I try to make the argument of I try to convince you to do it by saying look ultimately you can do better and go further and so on it's almost like it doesn't occur to me also you know what it's more fun you know it's just more fun to do it that way <laughs> yeah you know? and actually there's reason enough isn't it, it of course
1: yeah that, that literally is reason enough of yeah. course it is like before joining the acario team I'd, i lived in an apartment alone i was trying to build my own coaching business and it was it was really difficult i just was working from home and i just i didn't go out much and it was just oh my god it was miserable and i actually had a day um actually yesterday where I wrote in my journal in the evening, it's like, a year ago, I was not I just couldn't conceptualize having days as good as today. Mm. My nice. my imagination wasn't capable of it, because it couldn't see any indication of that being a possibility anywhere. Um and it was in large part to um as a result of sort of integrating with the tribe more. Mm. And like I'm, I'm living with I'm living with Jonas Dean and Ryan, working with Jonas Dean and Ryan you know just spending basically all day with them and a year ago that would have terrified the shit out of me <laughs> I'd be like, oh my god no way uh but now it's um and now you're like you, you should sh- try it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly yeah
0: yeah all right so that that was awesome thank you very much derek thank so you. we have let's do one more um there's another message from james
3: hey guys absolutely love what you're doing uh You're on episode 14 or 15 now, and every time I'm like, they've exhausted me. They've, you know, specifically targeted a problem I'm having in the first five. There's no way number six is also going to speak directly to me, but you do. So thank you. I'm really, really uh, grateful for having tripped over and found you guys. Um, Specifically, the implementation part, right? So you guys aim at entrepreneurs or young guys looking to, to develop into social butterflies. I am coming out of a midlife crisis, right? And I'm looking for self-definition, and you're really helping me with that. So I don't know if that's a, one of your future topics. But as we spend two and three years reading and listening and listening to podcasts and learning at some point that implementation is, you know, what I'm going to call my start finish line of we're done, put the midlife crisis behind you and get moving. Uh, I don't know if that's something targeted you're going to get at or go back and hit uh, implement- or I
0: this voice message cuts off. Okay. It's a shame. That's, that is that yeah. is
1: yet another good podcast voice. I was about <laughs> to say, everyone who calls in has a better podcast
0: voice than me. i got to say. Anyway, yeah, that, that was great. So I think we got the gist of it. Um at least I hope there wasn't like another. I hope he didn't keep talking for like two minutes, and make some amazing points, but it wasn't recording anymore. Oh, that would have, that would <laughs> yeah. suck. But but it was good stuff in there already. So so well, first of all, I'm super happy to hear that that we've managed to kind of hit the nail on the head with with the topics. That's it's great to hear. Um, and and yeah, the, I think so. Uh, you mentioned the idea of like self-definition, right? So so it kind of finding or defining who you want to be, this kind of thing. I think that we should have a debate about this at one point because I think that, or, or maybe it's even, maybe it's even like you and Ryan should have a debate or something because even, but even the two of us, I spent a lot of time. It's like building a self, you know, building the self, building Shane, you know, <laughs> a lot of time. And you're all like, you know, meditating and being like, "Oh, no self. Oh, Ollie is an illusion." And so stuff. there isn't one. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's the absurd thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I'd love to. That'd be that'd yeah. be a good conversation to have. Mm-hmm. But but maybe yeah, I was thinking that maybe Ryan. I don't I don't know because maybe I've I've already slipped too far into yeah. Maybe Shane doesn't matter. You know, <laughs> 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 I've converted him. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. No, that's um But it would be a very cool topic to talk about for sure. It would be a cool topic to to talk about definitely. And the thing is I don't have any direct experience with a midlife crisis. Mm. But some of the gentlemen that I have on my men's emotional support call every week have gone through or are currently going through something very similar. Mm-hmm. And the way um this is related to a book that I'm reading at the moment called um Finding your North Star, which is like basically like finding the thing that that drives you, that motivates you, your deepest desires, that kind of thing. And at the start of the the book, she talks about the um, your essential self and the social self. And and essentially, what when you're born, you're you're a kid, you are your essential self. There's no like, there's no second part of you. You're just living your experience, right? But as you get older, as people start chiming in, telling you who you should be, like you know. Three, the three P's, professors, peers, and parents, they all tell you like who you should be. Mm. And you construct this social self. And if you like identify mostly with your social self, you do what's expected of you for a very long time until eventually you may achieve all the things that you've been told you should be, but the fulfillment, the promised land has not arrived. And you're like, what the fuck is this all about? You know? And it's at that point, allegedly... That you sort of see, hang on, have I I really been doing this the whole time? Because this has not made me happy. Mm. And then you sort of see the, um, the futility of the social self. And it's like you see it for what it is. You've just basically done what you've told your whole life. And you're going through this midlife crisis where you're now asking yourself what you really want. What really motivates you? What really drives you and everything? And on the emotional support group call that I'm on, it's surprising how men can hit the 40s and fifties and they've never actually asked themselves sincerely those questions and mm. um, so that's just a few thoughts that came to mind
0: with what you just said yeah w- one thing i want to add about this is that um it's not too late and th- the reason i say this is because i have seen this so much in people of all ages everybody feels like they've kind of missed the train you know and it's always, basically, the experience is whoever's younger than you, whenever you hear someone who's younger than you talk about this, it's like, oh, you know, I've, I'm, I'm basically, I missed out. You know, I'm already 25, and I haven't done this and that. And you're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> you're a baby, <laughs> right? <laughs> but and, but it, it basically keeps going. It keeps going. I think that this feeling of, oh, it's too late. You know, I'm, I'm too old to reinvent myself or something like that. I'm too old to change my life around or something it seems that that's pretty much a universal feeling. Like it starts at about 19, you know? At about 19, you start feeling like that about various areas of your life and you start comparing yourself, you know, because, yeah, for a 19-year-old, maybe it's like, oh my God, I haven't had a girlfriend and everyone around me has had two girlfriends by now or something. And you feel like you're behind, it's too late and so on. Whereas, of course, like, dude, it's fine, (laughs) right? And then, and the same with career and stuff, you know, you look around you and you go, oh my God, these people have a career and they're making money and stuff and I'm still not sure what I'm doing. And again, it feels like you're behind. But the truth is that basically it's never too late. No matter you know, no matter what age you are, first of all, it's always now. And there are loads and loads of stories of people who like reinvent themselves and, you know, find their calling and so on really late in life. And it's fine, it still works, right? It still works out. So that's the main message. That, that I want to say here is that basically that feeling, you can accept that feeling. It's like, okay, this comes up for everyone. We, we compare ourselves to some to some fantastical ideal who immediately knew what they wanted in life and how great would that be? Well, the truth is you do have no idea what that would be like. You know, that would be maybe some other form of a disaster. Who knows? There's no, no point worrying about that, right? <laughs> and, and just be aware that your feeling of, I don't know if this is too late from the from the perspective of lots of other people who are a bit older than you they're looking at you going oh my god you have no idea how young you are
1: yeah yeah and we're often um fed the uh you know fed these stories of people who just sort of they were like virtuosos at young ages yeah. they knew exactly what they wanted to do they just found their purpose they found their calling and meanwhile we're just here like Am i i don't even know what i'm doing tomorrow yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah so
0: so yeah all right so That was awesome. Really glad to get this kind of feedback. And um, yeah, you can go to anchor.fm forward slash Ikario to leave a voice message. You can also like open, depending on how you listen to your podcast, right? You can open the description of the podcast episode and there'll be a link in there that will eventually lead you to the right place. (laughs) You'll find it. You know how it goes. Um, But yeah, you can basically, on anchor.fm forward slash Ikario, you can tap a button that says message and it will just... Uh, you can just speak into your phone or your laptop or wherever, record that message, send it to us, and then it will be featured in a future episode.
1: Welcome to the Acario podcast, once again, where we help you break free from the human zoo, optimize your life, and become a force. To be reckoned with,
0: it is Ollie again. Nice to see you. And I'm Shane. And today we're talking about a concept that actually came up early on when we started working together and that you really um, took a liking to, I think, Uh, the idea of like your skill floor and your skill ceiling. So, yeah, why don't you get us started? Like, what is, can you give us like the basic idea of what is this concept about? What is the skill floor and the skill ceiling? How does this relate to, you know, becoming better? at being a human being.
1: All right. So the reason why I quite like this concept is because it's one of the few things that I actually learned from um, fake guru guy I hired. It's one of the few tidbits of information that I got that actually resonated with me. And basically put it's... So when it comes to a given skill, you have um, a flaw which is w- what you are on your worst day, for example, and your ceiling, which is um, what you are on your best day. Mm-hmm. And what um, the way this relates to, say, getting better is rather than, um, or I guess I could pro- probably say that in equal measure of paying attention to exactly how far can your ceiling go, you also need to pay attention to um, how high your floor can be. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can use this in terms of like your, your general lifestyle. Um, for example, on my worst day, I usually do still some form of writing. Mm-hmm. Even on my worst day, if I'm having a shitty day where emotionally I'm all over the map and um, you know I'm not getting stuff done, I'm not really motivated and I'm just twisted mentally in some way, I'll write about it, even if I feel terrible. Mm-hmm. Whereas my best day, I meditate and I write and I exercise and I do loads of work and I reach out to people and socialize and all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. So like, that's my ceiling kind of day. Mm-hmm. But my floor kind of day is I just, right. I just do a
0: bit of writing. Right, but it's not nothing. No. Yeah. And so, yeah, so also let's just, especially if we, so the example you gave is kind of in terms of your habits, your lifestyle, right? It's like you have... Um, a, a ceiling on the floor there yeah uh, in terms of skills also i would say that one way to think of it is just like instead of thinking of what is my skill level so it's almost like if you have a graph if you think about your skill progressing over time it's not just a single line where at any given moment in time this is your skill level rather it's like a range you so at any given time you're the 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 main line of your skill level is hopefully going to go up as you learn something, right? That line is going to go up. But you also have a skill ceiling and a skill floor. And that implies a couple of things. So it means that on the one hand, it basically adds a bit more complexity. It's not just that you're this good at something and that's it. Yeah, You're this good at something, but depending on various circumstances, depending on, let's say, your mental state, how much rest you got and so on, you might be able to perform at your maximum potential or you might not be able to perform at your maximum potential. Um, and that's important to, to take into account. But also, and one of the things I think is interesting about the concept of a skill floor and ceiling is that you can get to the point where your floor, so the lowest point you tend to fall to, is higher than your ceiling used to be. Mm. And that is is something that I think is is important to see. So, for example, when it comes to productivity, if we just kind of take that as a fairly complex thing, but if you take that as a single skill, productivity skill, this is something I've been developing for a long time in my life. And I think the mistake, there's a mistaken notion that people have about what it means to be highly productive. And I call this the the always-in-the-zone fallacy. So the notion that people tend to have is a highly productive person, like every morning at 5am, they kind of rise out of bed, you know, eyes wide open right away. And then, you know, they have their cold shower, and then they do their exercise. And then they work, you know, they work like a machine for 12 hours or whatever. And, and And then the next day, same thing, next day, same thing, right? It's like, the idea that a highly productive person is always in the zone. They're always a hundred percent on point. They always check all of their habits off of the, um, off the checklist and they always work just, you know, like, like I said, like a machine. Yeah. And then you compare yourself to that ideal and you think, well, I'm I'm terrible at this, you know? So for me, the reality is that I have become vastly more productive than I was at the beginning of this journey but I still have ups and downs. So I still have, and that's basically me oscillating between my skill ceiling and my skill floor when it comes to my productivity skills. So I, I have days that are a bit like that. I don't get up at five, but I have days where I'm basically on point in the zone all day. But that's not, that's not the typical day. And I have days that go horribly. Maybe I didn't sleep well. And right away I'm kind of dragging myself out of bed and that day is not going to go as well. And that still happens and that used to be true and that's still true. Now I still have ups and downs. But what I've really noticed over time is that even if I have a really unproductive period, if I have, you know, maybe I have, let's say, two weeks that are just not going well, where I'm basically on my floor and it feels to me like subjectively, it feels like I'm being really lazy I'm not being productive. This is, this is terrible, you know, in terms of productivity, it's a terrible period in my life. But objectively, if I look at my work output during that time, my work output during such a bad period is greater than my best work output used to be. Yeah. And so that's a practical example of like at my worst, I can still outwork my former self at his best.
1: Yeah, because your skill range has changed. Yeah.
0: There's something you said a while ago.
1: <clears throat> when you uh, challenged the team at Acario to do challenge 44 mm-hmm. where it's like the first month you do 30 content pieces the second month you do ten the fourth uh, the third month you do four mm-hmm. and um there was a conversation we had at one point where I was, we sort of uh, deepened like why why that changes it goes from 30 10 to four mm-hmm. and you said something to the effect of because if you were to just say 30 30 30s your skill your skill doesn't deepen you're literally just producing the same stuff it's like you've gone you're you're still super shallow and you might improve your skills your skill range to a certain degree but there needs to be an element where you you deepen um, Mm -hmm. the the skill building and you said something like it doesn't matter uh, there's a certain skill level you're at where effort like the, your present the present amount of effort that you put into it now will still only result in this. Yeah, that's your ceiling. Yeah. But whereas there are people who exert can exert because their skill range is far different, mm-hmm. they can exert far less effort, and their their produced you know, their output is still far better than you at your yeah
0: most effort. And I think that's that's something that's important to realize when it comes to something like creating content. And it this it applies to everything else, but I'll, I'll just go with the example. Of content because that's the example you gave before, right? If you're creating a piece of content and you're comparing that to great content, then that usually feels bad. And you go, oh my God, mine is so much worse. But it's a mistake to think that in order, you know, if, if this other content piece is 10 times better than mine, it means that I have to spend 10 times more effort to make it, right? It takes 10 times, like I have to do it 10 times harder or spend 10 times as much time in order to get that good, but that's not true. What's true is that the, you know, the person who made the content piece that's 10 times better, their skill level is way higher. And so actually an example of this is, a, a practical example of this would be being able to present on camera. So that is something, that's a skill that I've developed over a long time as well. And that is something where you can quite literally, you know, the average person, if you tell them, okay, turn on this camera and explain something for five minutes. First of all, most people are terrified um, by this, by the prospect of this. They would rather die than do this, basically, right? (laughs) And but if they did it, like they'd be nervous, and they'd, you know, it'd be quite unpleasant to watch, and they'd probably ramble on, get on tangents, and it's kind of hard to watch, unclear message in the end, right? And someone who's got a lot of practice doing this, they can literally flip on the camera, talk for five minutes, turn it off, and you've got a good content piece. I mean, it's not—it's not like a mind-blowing content piece, but like it's a clear, you know, engaging, uh, good explanation of whatever they were trying to explain. That's not extraordinary effort. They're literally just going, okay, well, I'll talk about this for a bit, <laughs> you know. That's very important to realize that the 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 way to get there is not to increase your effort to try harder is you have to increase your skill. Yeah. So and yeah, and I think that's that's one of the things also one of the things that I mean, I want to talk a bit about how to, you know, the practical implications of this. Because I think it makes sense, right? You have a you have a skill ceiling, you have a skill floor, and Actually, also, one, one more conceptual thing that maybe we need to mention is that obviously you can raise your skill ceiling and your skill floor, and that's independent, which means you can be someone who has a really high skill ceiling, but a really low skill floor. Hmm. I've not thought about that before. Yeah. So, and And we'll talk about how to develop that, but obviously that's not a good position to be in. That is the position where you are asked to perform in some way, and basically, you don't know if this is going to go amazing or terrible. So it's, it's
1: inconsistency.
0: Yeah, exactly. So you can perform well sometimes, but you can't comp- perform well consistently because ah. you have a, your range between your skill floor and skill ceiling is too great. And ultimately, someone who has a narrower band, so f- someone for whom the ceiling isn't as far away from the floor, is more, they will basically have more power than someone who has a really wide range. So in terms of like, um, you know, let's say in terms of career opportunity, if you wanna get hired, if you have a really high skill ceiling, but a low skill floor, then someone who is at a lower level than you has their floor and ceiling close together is more likely to get hired. Because most employers would rather have someone who consistently performs at a lower level than someone who's sometimes amazing and sometimes terrible, right? Yeah, that makes that makes sense. And it's the same for you know, whatever else you do. Again, if you think about content creation, if you every once in a while you make something amazing and then and then sometimes it's a kind of average and then sometimes it's kind of crap, it is much harder to be successful as a creator, if that's your if that's the case, than if you have consistency in your quality.
1: That, yeah okay that that makes sense and just something that sprung to mind then as an example um one of my one of my favorite musicians one of my favorite beat makers is on YouTube I might even put a little clip of him in the podcast actually it's a guy called his alias is cooking soul right and it was a really funny thing is like he uploads he videos of him making beats and stuff and he went on holiday to the Caribbean with his family once and he made a video where he was basically making beats on the plane. Mm -hmm. he's got his kids screaming and like he's on a plane for god's sake and he's got (laughs) his headphones in and he's just making beats and they're fantastic (laughs) and then someone someone mentions in the youtube comment section like this guy sat here making better beats on the plane (laughs) on on his way to a vacation than most people do like months in the studio yeah and it just goes to show doesn't it it's like this guy with just a little beat making thing just a little mpc through sheer skill, being able to read what sounds good in samples and all this other stuff, can just whip up a a quick beat that just sounds way better than what most people can produce with with extreme effort. Yeah, and that's just a real strong example of of the skill the skill gap there.
0: Yeah, so that's a really high skill floor. Yeah, under the worst circumstances, he still performs amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. And so. So one, one last conceptual thing I want to get to before we go into like the, the practical, how do you make this happen? How do, you, how do you use this in your life? Which is just the idea that I think that people underestimate the value of skill for something like this. We tend to overestimate the importance of things like gadgets, gear, uh, strategy, tactics, you know, what kind of software are you using? Yeah, et exactly. What software are you using? You know, what camera are you using? What microphone are you using this kind of stuff? But also like, oh, what's the trick? You know, what's the what's the hack? What's the shortcut? What's the clever way to do the to get the result, right? We we overestimate or we overemphasize the importance of these things. And the example you gave just there is actually great, right? Because someone who doesn't have that level of skill, all the gear in the world, in the best equipped studio of the world, they cannot make a good beat. Yeah. But someone who has excellent skill can, under the crappiest circumstances, make something that sounds amazing.
1: Yeah, and for me, that's just way more appealing mm-hmm. rather than having all the gear and no idea. Yeah. It's like you've just got like basically cheap equipment or not much equipment and the
0: circumstances aren't great, but your skill is that good that you can yeah. just make do with what you have. And there's, the, th- I think the important thing to realize here is that there's far more leverage in skill than in basically anything else. So an example I like to give here is, you know, if you, if you watch someone who's a professional climber, if you look at how good they are at climbing, it's, you know, they, they can go to um, a rock face and kind of walk up it as if it's a ladder where even a moderately trained climber is just like, I can't even, I can't even start. I can't even get my feet off the ground here. Like, yeah. And it looks, it looks magical. It's like how on earth are you moving up this wall? And now think about if you want to get there, how much is having you know better climbing shoes going to help? How much is whatever gear going to help? How much is it going to help? Even you know tips, tactics, if someone says, okay, well, here's what you need to do. You need to grip this thing and put your foot here and so on. If you don't have the skill, none of this stuff is going to get you up the wall. And so... In in most cases, you know, better strategy, tactics, hacks, shortcuts, gear, etc., that can usually give you like a ten percent uh, advantage. But better skill can give you ten x, hundred x, thousand x advantage. Yeah, and that, so that's that's one of the reasons why I think it's really important to emphasize skill and skill development. Essentially, oh, this is this is the reason I'm obsessed with skills.
1: <laughs> well, there's there's also another um, great example. So obviously we live in we live in Lisbon right now, and in the main there's like a main street that leads up to the main like sort of square. Uh, can't remember where it is now, what what the name of it is. But anyway, it's very it's a very popular street, and there's street performers up and down this street, and some of them are comically bad, <laughs> as in like there's a guy who stood there just with his belly out, dressed like a Native American, doing nothing, <laughs> but taking photos with tourists and somehow getting paid for it. Right. There's another guy who's just dressed like Spider-Man, same deal. This guy just sat there dressed like Spider-Man. Just, <laughs> and he somehow gets paid, right? And then me and Ryan are walking up and down the street just thinking, what, what's going on here? Why are they, how, are they, how is this working for him? But the one, the one street performer that I actually was genuinely impressed by was a street drummer mm. who was just sat in the street with like just tubs, mm. plastic tubs, and rusty pans and stuff. And he was just drumming away. Occasionally, he'd like lose one of his sticks and just keep it going somehow. And then someone had handed it him back. And then what And I was just—I was absolutely blown away by the skill level of this guy. Like even with like he hadn't got a full elaborate drum kit. You know, he was just making do with what he had. Chaos was all going off around him. Someone nicked one of his pans. He was like, "All right, whatever." Carried on. And then he was somehow entertaining a crowd of about thirty people, and mm-hmm. everyone was cheering him. And paying, he had loads of money, mm-hmm. and it was like, "Mate." That skill level was just just mind boggling, whereas like, you know, he didn't need a full drum kit or anything like that. Right. Yeah. So
0: yeah, yeah, and you and and there in that case, it also pays off. Like you can see the difference in the in the reaction of people around him, right? Definitely. Yeah. So okay. So with that said, let's talk about. There's basically three separate things we can consider here. Like, how do you raise your skill level let's say your your skill level midpoint how do you raise your ceiling and how do you raise your floor those are the three things we want to consider right yeah but also is there is there not another how do you bring these together yeah so that's basically i would say that's about raising the floor right you want to make sure that you're not if you're if you're mostly doing things that raise your ceiling you end up with this big gap right but if you're if you're doing things that that raise your skill level and raise your skill floor. Then that's the most important way in which you in which you close the gap. I would say. Okay. You want to bring up the floor. So let's start with um, well. The basics of how do you um, how do you raise your skill. Let's start with that, right? The, the basics of how do you raise your skill. I think a good framework for that is from uh, Peak by Anders, what is Anders K. Erickson, I think, hmm. um, which where he talks about what he calls deliberate practice, which is a terrible term, I prefer to call this peak practice. So the, the, the specific things that make the difference between, uh, if you have a group of people, they all practice the same amount. Some of them get really good, much better than others. What are the things they do differently, right? The people who do in the same amount of practice time Get far better than average. What do they do differently? That's basically what he pulled out of a bunch of research. So, what are these? Um, what are these things? Well, first of all, regular long-term practice. Um, regular long-term practice at a at a suitable time interval. I know this is boring, but that's just part of how to build a skill. You've got to do something like consistently enough you got to do it regularly. You've got to do it for a long time. And you want to have like that time interval is, is important because basically what you want to have is you want to have periods of intense practice followed by periods of rest. So it's no use to like bunch too much practice altogether um, and then have too much rest in between. It's better to spread that out hmm. because the actual learning happens in between sessions, mostly, right? So, really? Yeah, it's just like you, you you it's the same with um you know, if you go to the gym, you don't get stronger while you're lifting weights. You get stronger overnight while you're sleeping in bed, right? Yeah, it's because during a session it's not like you do you do the first set and it's like, "Oh, I got a bit stronger," and then you do more weight in the second set, right?
1: Yeah, that makes sense. But is there um, is it can it equally cross over between say something that that's a skill mm-hmm. as opposed to something that might require your like cognitive capacity? Yeah. Rather than physical, like the gym,
0: yeah, it, yeah. it can, the, can same the same for, principle be applied. It's the same for cognitive and also for like motor skills and things like that. Basically, so for for physical strength and physical performance, you have during practice you have the stress, the, the, the hormetic stress or the stressor, and then you have recovery and supercompensation. So um, you basically you put the stress on the physical system. And you give it time to recover, and the the recovery essentially overcompensates. It's almost like the body is saying, "Ooh, that was really hard. Let's make sure that next time it's not as hard anymore." Okay. So when you exercise, you essentially at first you get weaker, then you return to the same point you were before, and then you go slightly beyond it. Hmm. And then if you do nothing, you it falls back again. So then you you basically want to catch that period where you're slightly over. Um, Yeah, I think it's called supercompensation. That's when you want to do your next training session. So then again, you get weaker and slightly stronger, weaker and slightly stronger. And with um, cognitive skills and including motor skills, it is during the practice you have essentially the input, but it's during rest that stuff is actually stored. Um, Because obviously, we've, we've all experienced this, right? Like you can read a book and be very impressed by it, but then you forget almost everything you read. And so, if you want to actually learn it, you have to have some. You have to have the input, and then rest and recall. And you have um, some. You know, again, like I'm I'm generalizing this, but it's going to be some interval of input, rest, recall, input, rest, recall, or some configuration of that. And it's it is in. It's in the rest period where stuff moves into your long-term memory, for example. Um, And and recall is one of the ways in which to in which to strengthen that, and in which to find out where your knowledge gaps are, so you can input the stuff that you didn't remember again. Hmm. Anyway, so but in general, the, the actual growth happens in between training sessions. So and that's okay. That's a basic of that's kind of the basics of what you need to do in order to get better at something. But then in order to, to do this more effectively. So if we go into like the idea of peak practice or deliberate practice, some other factors are you want to have, you want to be doing deeply focused practice sessions and you want to make sure that the practice session is not too difficult and not too easy. So if it is so difficult that it's just like frustrating, that's not very good. If it's, too easy that you're kind of just, um, you know, kind of just sailing through, that's no good. For you want to be like, yeah, basically, if you think of those two poles, on the one hand, you have is too difficult. It's just frustrating. I hate it. <laughs> on the other side is like, this is super easy. I don't even have to pay attention to it. You want to be leaning towards the too difficult side, right? It's like like right in the middle. If it's like mildly uncomfortable, you're probably not maximizing your learning. You want to be struggling with the material a bit. That's usually where most learning happens. Would that be that be the flow state, right? Yeah, the, well, the flow state, it's, so for, for optimal learning, you might be slightly further towards difficult than than flow. So, and I think especially for like cognitive skills, I think you might find yourself out of the flow state when you're trying to learn something, right? You're really wrestling with something that isn't internalized enough yet that you can be in a flow state executing. So you need to lean further towards the frustrating side of the equation, unfortunately. Right. Again, I want to say as a caveat, I'm being hyper general here because of course, whatever area of skill it is that you want to learn, there's probably going to be... um, some material there that can give you more specifics, you know. So what I'm saying here, I think, applies fairly widely. But I would not at all be surprised if someone tells me, oh, actually, you know, for, for learning an instrument, it's actually slightly different than for learning mathematics or something. That, you know, I'm sure there are some variables there. Yeah. But I would be surprised if there's any anything where it's, like, totally different, you know. That's that's rarely going to be the case. That is, that is totally not... That it totally doesn't work like this. Yeah, seems uh, like there'd
1: be a fair bit of crossover.
0: Yeah. Okay, so like I said, not too difficult, not too easy. Mm-hmm. Um, the one one exception actually is um, uh, cardiovascular training. It's like um, like our community members will be able to see the a presentation that Tim from the Cario team did. Yeah, with, about about marathon running, yeah. Yeah, about running. So with cardiovascular training, it seems like you have to lean f- much further towards the easy side to get the optimal training effect. Although even there, obviously, if it's so easy that it's no effort at all, you're not going to get a training effect. And you're not going to run a marathon, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but that's just, yeah, like I said, there's going to be variables, right? It, um, it's almost like you have like these little different knobs to adjust. And depending on what you're learning, you you want to adjust them a little bit well yeah that, that makes sense with
1: my experience like learning to make music um I, I developed like initially it was really difficult and it was frustrating but i stuck with it and then i learned to do certain things made some tracks and then was like i, I, I developed a very rigid system for div, like for making music but then i just got bored with it because i was like well this is just right i'm just this is just the you, system you now. had
0: to push yourself out of your comfort zone again right? yeah mm-hmm.
1: then it was just like okay well what if i just switch that up and don't use that anymore it's like Oh, okay. Then it's like you push yourself just a little bit more. But the point is, it got boring, mm-hmm. and I, I didn't feel like I was developing any skill. I was just creating the same stuff. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, that fits with that tracks with my
0: experience. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then two two more factors for ideal practice, and for ideal skill growth are you want to be modeling experts. So ideally, you should be able to to model off of people who are exceptional performers in your field in some way so for physical skills that means you ideally want to be able to work with someone and really observe how are they doing this um you know in great detail basically really observe what and and ideally also you need teaching along with that because someone can maybe tell you um basically someone can tell you what actually matters and what doesn't you know so if you're, if you're watching an expert do something, the expert can tell you, okay, what really matters here, you know, maybe you notice me doing this, but that, that doesn't matter, that's not an important aspect. What's really important is something else that's maybe less obvious, you know? Yeah. So you wanna have that, but you wanna be able to model after experts. And for cognitive skills, it becomes a little bit more difficult because you basically wanna be able to learn mental models from experts. And that's a bit less obvious, but, you know, um, an example of that would be, you know, you want to learn how to play chess, let's say, it's like just from seeing someone staring at a chessboard and moving pieces around, you don't get that much of, you you don't get the mental models they're using. Mm -hmm. So you really need to find a way to get that insight of, of what are you, what are you thinking? How are you breaking down the positions you're seeing? How do you arrive at this decision of moving the piece here? I understand. Can I, can I tell a story? Yeah, please. So
1: this sprang to mind, and I didn't actually plan for this. But um, so I used to, I went traveling in Australia a few years ago. Um, and went there for about just about nine months or so. Wound up in Tasmania, and I was an apple picker for a bit. I was picking apples, literally the most difficult job I've ever done in my life. Ten hours a day, you're up the ladder picking apples. <laughs> uh, and you'd be up early. So you could come back before it gets dark. Basically, you had a a bag strapped to the front of your body. You had a ladder to go up up the, you know, to go up and and pick apples, obviously. But you'd also have a bin. What they call a bin? It's like um, you know, it's like maybe three meters by three meters, and a couple of meters. No, well, about a, a meter and a half deep. And you'd have to fill this bin just full of apples. Mm. You'd get paid 40 Australian dollars a bin. All right. So when I first started doing this, it was the most it broke me physically. So I thought I was hard as nails. I thought I was like, you know, I do hit training and all this stuff. I thought, you know, I'll just I'll be jumping up that ladder, picking apples all day. Just watch me. Second day and I was like, I don't know who I am anymore. Like it was, <laughs> it was it was that challenging. And I only ever managed about 2 bins a day. It's about 80 dollars. Sometimes one it was pathetic now there was a guy there who worked same same orchard this italian fella who was averaging seven or eight bins a day
0: <laughs> Jesus. <laughs>
1: now yeah. it was crazy to watch this guy that's what that's one of the things that we you know that someone suggested to us that we just watch the guy just take one day and just watch him don't mm-hmm. pick any apples that day just watch how he works and so i did that and I noticed that the guy, first of all, he was one of the skinniest men I've ever, ever met in my life. And one thing he never did was stop. He just didn't stop moving. And I was asking, like, how do you, how do you, 10 hours. how do you do it? It was like, just, just don't stop moving. It's okay, just relax, don't stop moving. Mm-hmm. And he just, and then you watch him, and always, his body is always in motion up the, up the ladder, no matter what. Like, as he picks one, his other arm is reaching up there to grab another apple. Bam, bam, and then it's just it's constant flow. Mm. and he doesn't tense up that was the interesting thing to watch him he wasn't like you know because I was like tensing up mm. and mentally resi- mentally and physically resisting the action but he was just in total whoop, 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 constant constant movement and totally relaxed he wasn't out of breath um so it's like obviously he'd practiced this a lot he, he would come back every year and he was doing this for about six seven years uh, when it was picking season Cause it turn up, make a shitload of money, (laughs) (laughs) and then leave. So that's an example of like skills being super important. You got really good at this. Mm.
0: Um, So I thought that that was something that applied. But could you? Did you manage to? Did you improve your own peaking rate? No, I left. Pretty. (laughs) (laughs) You you
1: saw that and you were like, "Okay, I'm out." (laughs) I saw that. I I managed it there for about uh, about a month, Mm. but I still recognised that. Look, I was still averaging like two, three bins a day. I went from one bin a day average to three. Which in a month isn't bad, but it was going to be. I think I think three for that foreseeable future was my max. Yeah, not like seven or eight like that nutcase.
0: Yeah, but but but, <laughs> but yeah. yeah. So even for something like picking apples, you know, skill makes the biggest difference. Yes, that's interesting. Yeah. All right. So you want to be modeling expert like like expert apple pickers. That's what I mean. Um, and the final component is ideally you want to have a feedback loop. So which would be you know teaching coaching kind of thing where it's like i do the thing and i get feedback from an expert or from an expert coach who says who can give me corrections um you can also in some cases you you can have a self feedback loop so if you're a creator you can obviously create a thing whatever it is a video write something create a design or whatever and you can come back and look at it and go okay what what could I improve about this? So it's possible to do some self-feedback, but obviously you're going to be much more effective. You're going to make faster progress if you get feedback from an expert. So those are the components. Again, so regular long-term practice, deeply focused practice sessions, not too difficult, not too easy, um, modeling experts and having a feedback loop. Those things are going to be things that, that really add like rocket fuel to your skill growth overall. Hmm. All right, and so that's that's something to keep in mind. So that, that will make your skill grow in general. Now let's start talking about floor and ceiling. Let's, let's start with the ceiling, right? What are things, what are circumstantial things that can make your performance in the moment better? Or what are the things you can ask yourself, like, what are the things that get the absolute best performance out of me in the moment? There's some obvious ones, like being well-rested. You know, obviously, if you... Did an all-nighter and you're hungover, then you're not going to perform as well as if you're well rested. And another thing is being in a good emotional and mental state. So this is why um, performers will usually have various rituals they go through to calm themselves down or hype themselves up or whatever, because they are trying to get into that maximum state. You know, so it's like someone who's. At a weightlifting competition, are just like screaming and and, and you know, slapping each other and whatnot, right? <laughs> to try and rile themselves up to get into this maximum state of being able to lift that weight. Um, whereas, you know, on the other side of the spectrum, right, b- maybe before you give a, a, a presentation, you're going to be really calming down because you, you don't want those nerves, right? You don't want to be stuttering or stumbling over your words. So you're trying to get into that like calm and confident mental state and again depending on what the performance is there's there's probably an optimal mental state to be in to get the most out of yourself
1: yeah in, in um in sports psychology we we got taught that there's like an ara- a point of um like an ideal point of arousal of like psychological arousal for for an athlete and that depends on the the sport the activity and the athlete it's mm-hmm. so like in MMA, for example, you'll have some fighters that will, just before they get into the cage, um, they'll be screaming and shouting and they'll be asking their corner men to slap them. Mm-hmm. And that's them getting into this, like their, their arousal point for them to be performing at their optimal is is quite high. They need to, their energy needs to be high. Whereas others are just like stone cold. Like, you know, they're just, they're not, there's, there's not much activity they they walk in, in, they walk in slowly, yeah. and they're just staring. But then yeah. they just they absolutely just explode. It's crazy to watch. So yeah, mm-hmm. it depends on the activity, and it depends on the the person.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that that's one thing. Obviously, that makes a difference. And then another thing is being at the ideal point in your training cycle. And this is probably more relevant for physical stuff. Where so the the simple idea here is that you you're going to have some kind of a macro cycle. And if you're an athlete, then you, you know, that macrocycle is programmed to make sure that your maximum performance is ideal, you know, you're trying to hit the point of maximum performance on on the on race day or on whatever um the day where, you, where you're competing, right? And basically the basic idea here is that if you're if you're gonna run a marathon, the training session right before isn't running a marathon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So you will have The hardest training session is probably a couple of weeks ago. So you've kind of ramped up the intensity and then you've been in like recovery training mode so that on uh, performance day is where you're ready to ramp up to maximum again. Um, And it's the same for a lot of other things, right? So usually you, yeah, basically your hardest session isn't right before the performance. It's, It's kind of one cycle back. And so that's, that's, that comes into programming. For cognitive skills, I honestly don't know if there's any equivalent to this um, because, yeah, that's something I haven't I haven't researched. I'm pretty sure that the typical approach of like cramming, cramming the night before is probably not the best approach, let's be honest. <laughs> it's, it's a safe bet. Yeah. Okay. And then the, the final point here I want to make is for the the moment you perform is basically burning yourself out. So, and this is a big part of, again, a lot of athletic performance, is that on race day or competition day, you are doing things that are essentially irresponsible. You're doing unsustainable things. So you're running at a pace where you know, tomorrow I can't walk, (laughs) you know, and during your regular training schedule, you can't be running like that because you have a training session the next day. Yeah. Yeah and so you are basically pushing yourself so far that you know i am burning myself out this is not a pace that this is not a, an intensity of training that is sustainable and i'm risking injury but i'm doing this today because i'm trying to get the gold medal and again this is important to realize like you can push that ceiling upwards but it's a very limited thing you know and it's also a risky thing and i think outside of competition like outside of the scenario of being a competitive athlete I don't think this is ever really a a good thing to do like personally I never want to be in the situation where that's where I, what I have to do I have to push myself into the kind of burnout zone um, because yeah with the kind of work I do I, I need to be able to keep doing it you know and that's but I think it's important to consider this because you can basically acknowledge well yes my skill ceiling is slightly further up than where I'm showing up but I'm deliberately not pushing all the way up there because I want to keep. I want to be able to keep going. And there, there is a parallel to this for things like cognitive skills, creative work, knowledge work, because well, people experience burnout, right? People do, in fact, push themselves too hard in a way that is not sustainable. And usually, they also feel like, well, I should be able to keep doing this, whereas realistically, that's just not how it works.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's not. It's be- better to go. Depending on what you're doing, better to go 70% consistently, mm-hmm. like 100%, and then
0: maybe just. Yeah. And then, and then falling off a cliff or something. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, those are the things that generally you can do to, to raise that skill ceiling, to improve the performance, or to get closer to that maximum performance on any given day, essentially. And I think one of the most important things there is, is rest and recovery. That's usually what's what's missing, um, and where we're robbing ourselves of potential. And we make the mistake. I think we make the mistake of acting like an athlete on competition day. Because we think, well, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go harder, right? Right now I need to I need to perform more, so I'm just gonna suffer more, instead of being like, hold on, maybe I need to maybe I just need to step off the gas and get more sleep, <laughs> and come into this fresher tomorrow, you know. So it's like we're making too many sacrifices today and not thinking enough about our longer term performance. Now, skill floor, right? This is this is the big thing. So now we've talked about, okay, now you could be in a situation where your skill is growing. You know what to do to perform especially well on a day where it matters especially much, but you could still be in a situation where you can fall down really far on a bad day. Yeah. And talking of burnout, that's basically what then happens, right? You're performing super high, super hard, and then you fall all the way down and suddenly you're useless.
1: <laughs> yeah, burnout. Yeah. yeah. So just, just before you continue, um, I don't know if I've ever experienced full-blown burnout, mm. but I'm assuming you have. Yeah. And just just
0: as a quick stop off, what uh, what's that like? Well, I'm, I'm sure that there are many flavors of burnout. Um, and I can only talk about what I've experienced. But hmm, it's, hard, it's hard to explain. So for me, burnout was like just like complete overwhelm with stress. You know, where you're just like, where you're so stressed and that you can't, it's almost like you can't rally your, your focus or your attention on anything. Because you're just constantly so barraged by worry and overwhelm and stress. And you're so tired. You're so incredibly tired. That it's just... Actually, yeah, maybe this is... It it has a parallel to trying to work when you're extremely tired, you know? Where it's like no matter how hard I try to focus on this thing, you know, and maybe keep reading, it's just every time I blink, I'm... You know, my consciousness just disappears right away, and, I, and, I, and then I wake up like, oh, like in micro sleep, you know, where no matter how hard you try to fight it, it's just this force of sleepiness is just it's winning, and it's kind of like that, but with with stress and exhaustion, hmm. you know, where it's just it's or one way to think of it is like you're you've been using willpower to try and keep performing and like. It's like you're pushing against the fatigue and exhaustion and it's just like you're getting to that point where you can't you can't push anymore and it's you know you're still trying but you're losing and you can see that the kind of the exhaustion is winning out and my maximum effort to try and stave off the exhaustion is doing nothing but slowing it down slightly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, let's avoid that. Yeah, it's not it's not great. Okay, so yeah, what can you do to to raise your skill floor? I think one of the most practical things you can do here is to essentially do like agility training, which is to make sure that you are in your practice, you're adding enough kind of a little bit of chaos and randomness in your practice. So imagine this, right? If you're, if you're practicing something, so let's say um, I'm doing creative work, I'm doing design work, and for my... For my skill building, if I have a super dialed-in routine, that can be something really good. So every every day at the same time of day, I have my cup of coffee and I do my three hours of focus practice in the same place, listening to the same playlist. You know, like the and this is something we talk about, right? I'm I'm designing my environment to optimize for this for for this practice session, and I do it like clockwork, always the same. Well on the one hand, this can be very good. I'm going to be making fast progress. I'm, I'm building the habit of doing this. But if I only do this, I could run into trouble because I could run into the problem of, I, you know, something happens like there's a construction site outside for, you know, the next two weeks, there's going to be construction noise. And now I suddenly just, I can't I can't focus anymore because I'm so used to always having exactly the same circumstances, you know, and i'm used to it being quiet and now it's not quiet and it just throws me off completely right mm. um or or anything else that gets in the way you know anything that that disrupts this this perfect routine then just throws me off and this can be a problem for for is is especially a problem if your practice is not happening in the same environment as your performance you know so um so yeah so there what but what i can do is or there i would benefit from from adding a bit of randomness and chaos to my practice. And one of the ways to do that is to practice like with in different environments every once in a while and also with like different sets of tools and different resources. So that's another thing. Again, if we stay with the example of design, if I'm always doing design work and I always have, you know, my my professional drawing tablet and my pen and a specific design app that i use i can be in the situation where the moment i don't have that i'm screwed mm-hmm. because then it's like someone goes hey can you make this design but i only have photoshop you know we only use photoshop in this office and i'm like "Uh oh um, because photoshop is technically not, not really a design tool and i'm like you know i've been like oh I use sketch or whatever and now i'm screwed <laughs> because i don't have my usual tablet i don't have my usual input device i don't have my usual software and it's like i have to start from scratch yeah whereas if I have if I've practiced using different tools, if I sometimes do my design work, I don't know, on my cousin's iPad, which is a bit, you know, which is a bit rubbish and not like my professional setup, if I if I do some pencil sketching and stuff like that, that gives me a greater range and agility where I can then also unfold my skill under different circumstances. Right. So just so I'm just so I'm clear. It's like you've
1: got your skill, obviously you've got a skill scene and a skill floor. If you're so used to, like say if your skill level um, is like sort of tied to a specific set of maybe the software you use, the environment you're in, etc. Mm-hmm. And you're in a situation where you're plunged into, you know, a different environment that will, if you're not used to that, your skill floor will just drop. Mm-hmm. Dramatically. Or, or it will stay low, yeah. Or it will stay low. Yeah. Whereas if you introduce a bit of intentional chaos to the mix, then you're sort of preparing for that possibility to happen in the future. So, mm-hmm. so that if it were to happen, your skill floor won't be quite so low.
0: Mm-hmm. And in so in an athletic context, you can also think of this as you basically want to avoid being a glass cannon. Hmm. And so, a glass cannon is. A term for you know something that it's a cannon, so it produces a lot of force, but it's made of glass, so it easily breaks. Um, and you don't want to be that. So, for example, if you let's say you take running, if you're if you're always running indoors on a treadmill, so it's always the same temperature, it's always the same surface, and that's the only way you've ever run, you could build up quite a lot of running skill, but you'd probably be a glass cannon where you can very easily be thrown off if you're running on a different surface in a different temperature and under different circumstances, right? But if you go running outdoors and you know sometimes it's cold, sometimes it's wet, sometimes it's hot, you're running over varied surfaces and so on, that will give you more agility. That will give you more range. and Or in other words, it will make you less context-dependent. It makes your performance less context-dependent. And that's something that raises your skill floor. And and then similarly, you can also um, embrace—you can kind of embrace a bad start. So if you, you know, you can you can deliberately be like, okay, you know, last night I stayed up late and I'm hungover and so on. But instead of saying, well, today I'm not going to do my practice because it's not ideal, you can say, you know what, I'm just going to do it anyway. And that is also something that then you know, you've already had the experience. So whatever other circumstances get in the way, whatever other problems come up, you'll then be in a situation where it's like, okay, look, I've already practiced when I was tired. I've already practiced when I was hungover. I've already practiced when I was sad. I've practiced when I didn't have my coffee. I practiced when there was a child screaming next door. It's like, I'm not that easy to rattle anymore, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're kind of inoculating yourself against this. The part of you that, is kind of looking for an excuse as well to not practice.
0: Yeah, yeah exactly. And so, yeah, that's, that's what I'd look for, is basically look for, and the way I do this in practice is I try to introduce challenges. I try to introduce challenge to my work. That is, yeah, basically trying to do the work under different circumstances or trying to add creative constraints. Creative constraints can be great. So where, yeah, where you basically say, you know, like, let's say as a, as a filmmaker, where you go, okay, usually I use, you know, $50,000 worth of gear to make a short film. What if I only have an iPhone? And that's a creative constraint that, again, on the one hand, it can raise your skill floor. You might know, you might learn things under those circumstances with that constraint that you would never have learned if you had always kept, you know, with your high-level pro gear. Mm-hmm. um and it can also it can make you more creative it can make you discover things that you then bring back to your normal uh, creative work because you've kind of you know you've learned something new you've seen something from a different angle so it can it can also level it can actually also level up like your skill level and ceiling but also yeah it just makes you harder to throw off because you've kind of seen more different aspects you've, you've done it under more different circumstances and that's that's the approach I've often taken where I when I'm when I'm trying to get better at something, basically like you said with the with the music making, you know, when you get to a point where it's like, oh, this is getting a routine, I think, how can I make this harder for myself? You know, how can I almost like deliberately throw a wrench in the works to see what happens and then have to deal with that?
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean I, I see um I also see some parallel to just how one approaches life in general, right? Because, mm. for example, um, in the same way you introduce a little bit of chaos just so that you, um, you know, your the floor isn't too low. If in uh, in just life in general you choose uncomfortable situations voluntarily, yeah. that when discomfort or misfortune visits you, you at least can say, well, I've, I've chosen a bunch of these things and I've survived it. Mm. Um, whereas if you haven't chosen any of it and you, all you're doing is trying to avoid misfortune and uncomfortable situations as much as possible, when they inevitably arise, it's like you've,
0: you've made yourself almost weaker yeah, by get, virtue of doing that. Yeah, yeah, you make yourself vulnerable in a way. Mm. And I think actually, I think you're, there's probably, this is probably an underlying thing that, that makes a huge difference for your skill floor, which is, Kind of having an, an accepting versus an avoidant attitude, because hmm. if you if you have an avoidant attitude, you're always like, oh, I don't want to, yeah, I want to avoid difficulties, I want to avoid discomfort, I want to avoid doing anything under non-ideal circumstances. Then indeed, you're just like like we said, right? You're a glass cannon, you're easy to throw off. Whereas if your general attitude is, well, okay, this is, you know, this is unexpected. Let's see what happens. You're kind of expect accepting of that. I think that's that's probably like the underlying attitude that, that might make a huge difference in where your skill floor lies, you know? Um, so yeah, that's I think that's a great point. And the final thing I wanna say is also that in general your your skill floor will rise anyway, even if you don't take any like special precautions. Like your skill floor will rise. Um I think there's there's additional things you can do to kind of lift it up further and that's useful to do but in general just by practice if you just do practice even if you've never thought about it like this your skill floor will still rise hmm
1: that's reassuring mm-hmm. one thing i've noticed with myself is that um i used to i used to struggle with the skill gap like the, like a too wide a skill gap mm-hmm. and that was mostly a result of um well, like in personal training, for example, some days I'd show up, I'd be the best coach ever. Um, but other days I'd show up and I'd just be... I wouldn't be present. I'd be pretty... Basically, essentially pretty bad. And it was in part because I did—I actually didn't want to do the thing in the first place, like as a profession and whatnot. But also I had a lot of um, sort of emotional and mental tension. Mm. Like a lot of stuff I'd not dealt with, a lot of stuff in my life, like where I was specifically. And by sort of... I mean admittedly i kind of dealt with the skill problem by just changing career but also i noticed that toward the end of my career I actually became a lot more consistent because i would actually addressed the thing that was throwing me you know um, making my skill floor so low mm. on certain bad days which was that which was my mental and emotional struggles yeah. i was going through addressed them directly by like going to having a therapist and stuff and that, yeah.
0: that's something that closed the gap for me toward the end. Yeah, that's that's a great point. I'm, I'm glad you bring that up because because there's, there's like two aspects to this. One is how much is your performance impacted by your mental state? And obviously, like basically, the, the, the better your skill level gets and the more professional you get, the less your mental state impacts your performance. Hmm. But also, how big are the waves of your mental state? <laughs> because... Yeah, exactly. As you say, like if you are in a state where you have lots of unresolved issues and you fall into terrible depressions and stuff like that, then of course, even if you're super professional, like your mental state can be so bad that it still pulls you all the way down. And there the solution is not, Oh, how do I get better at, at doing this work? It's like, no, it's solve the <laughs> solve the emotional baggage. Solve the thing. Yeah. yeah. All right. This is the bit where we talk about some random stuff. Yep. What you got? So,
1: well, I was going to ask you about this whole Apple switch you've made oh. recently. Shane surprised me when he jumped on a team call and was talking about this uh, this Apple. The, like, was it was it like M1, a, the M1, the M1 was Mac? It, um, but it was it like a press conference or something that you'd, or a product launch that, like, a video you'd watched where yeah. Apple was talking about how important privacy is to them. And yeah. I don't know whether you guys have noticed, but Shane's pretty, mis- pretty, uh, you know not particularly trusting of big tech companies at the best (laughs) of times so this was kind of surprising to me when Shane was like you know what Apple yeah uh so I just wanted to sort of like pick your brain a little bit about that and initially it's like okay so just talk a little bit about that what is it that Mm. made the switch why did you
0: make the switch what was it that that prompted you to think you know Apple have got it right at the moment you know yeah so yeah, to give a bit of context, like for the longest time, I was a Windows and Android user. And that's what I was used to and grew up with. And I always sneered at Apple, mainly because their stuff is just overpriced in comparison. And for the most part, that's still true. Where, like, especially with the, the pre-M1 laptops, for example, or desktops, it's like, you could just clearly see, you know, you get an Apple laptop you can just clearly see that for significantly less money, you can get a Windows laptop with the exact same specs. So you're really just paying the Apple premium. And that is sometimes a a really huge chunk of money. And so for me, that was always like, look, I don't care if this stuff is good or not. It's like, I'm going to go with the thing that's the same, you know, the same level of performance at $500 less. And... So for the longest time I kind of just discounted that but then what happened is that I've been growing more and more uncomfortable with the whole privacy issue for quite a long time. So you know, I was never I was never on board with all this social media stuff and so on. But for example, I was I was a fairly happy Google user for quite a long time. But then like it, it dawned on me over the last few years that this is really not that much better than social media. You know, there's the same reasons I, I don't use Facebook are also the same reason why you shouldn't use Google. And and if anyone's wondering like, oh, what's that? Well, watch The Social Dilemma. Is, that's basically the most accessible way to learn about it is to watch The Social Dilemma. It's a great documentary. But also books like Zucked by Roger McNamee and 10 Reasons to Quit. 10 Reasons to Delete Your Social Media Right Now or whatever, I can't remember the exact... That's it, you got it right, by Jaron Lanier. Yeah, that's a good book. Um, And the Your Undivided Attention podcast is great. There's many sources where you can dive deep into just how bad this stuff is. It's basically a real problem that we don't have data privacy, that companies are sucking up all of our private information and using it against us pretty much. And this is something I grew more and more uncomfortable with and I tried to so and over a long period of time I've kind of been like been peeling off of all of these things you know I stopped using WhatsApp a long time ago, switched to to telegram and signal and I yeah and I got off social media ages or ne- never really got on social media really and started using less and less Google products like looking more and more for alternatives. To any product that's connected to one of these data hoover uh, data sucking corporations you know and then well one of the things is android right android is owned by google so i got a bit uncomfortable with that too and apple really got to me because of their privacy message messaging they've been for quite a long time they've been messaging about how they prioritize people's privacy and Beyond, if you look beyond just what they say, because obviously look in the ads, everybody says, oh, we value your privacy, right? <laughs> they can always weasel their way around that. But if you look beyond that, if you look at what Apple does and how they do things, the thing is they are really, they're basically the only tech giant whose incentives are aligned with actually respecting their users' privacy. Because for companies like Facebook and Google and so on, of course they always talk a big game about privacy. But it's always like, read this 72-page privacy policy which, te- which tells you all about, oh, we respect this aspect of your privacy and that aspect of your privacy and so on. And we don't, we don't collect this kind of data. We collect every other kind of data, you know? <laughs> Where it's like basically they will invade your privacy as much as they possibly can get away with while talking a big game about how they respect your privacy, right? And Apple is the only tech giant that has their incentives aligned. For some reason, it turned out this way that they started marketing like real privacy and they've stuck with that. So for the time being, they can be trusted with your data more than any other tech giant. And, you know, I'm not saying that they're, they're the good guys here. Like I said, their incentives are aligned such right now. So for the time being, um, and, you know, they do things like, for example, they just have more stuff where things like, they try to do the processing on device instead of in the cloud, which is not only good for data privacy and security, it's also good for technology. I would rather have a device that is capable of doing whatever the thing is that needs to be done rather than a device that has an internet connection, sends my data to the cloud, which is just someone else's computer, there the thing runs and then it's sent back to me. I'd rather have a device that's capable of doing this thing offline without needing to shove data around, right? Got oh, yeah.
1: So this is this is one thing that they do. Mm-hmm. Um any other things that they do because, because what it sounds like at the moment is the things that Apple have said don't how different are they to the things that say Facebook or Google would say so much so that it's had this impact on you? Mm-hmm. Cuz it, it surely there surely must be some differentiating thing. Because it'd be illogical to say believe what Apple says over yeah. Facebook for no real given strong reason.
0: Yeah. So, you basically, if you if you look into how they actually, you know, their actual privacy practices versus what they say, then it checks out right. with them. And and the other thing, the the easier thing, like obviously, you can you can try to dig into their actual privacy policy and all this kind of stuff. Um, and you can also, which is I don't read privacy policies, but I, I look at what privacy advocates have to say about about different companies. And there Apple always does better than these other companies. But also I think an important thing is that the the history, the track record. So Facebook will talk a lot about privacy, but they just have scandal after scandal after scandal after scandal where something comes out where it's like, oh my God, look at what they did, <laughs> you know <laughs> And it just keeps happening. And Apple don't have that, right? And so if that was the case, again, if if Apple said all the things they say and so on, but every two months there's some massive data leak where it's like, oh my God, they've been targeting kids with this thing and so on, right? Then of course I wouldn't believe it. Yeah. But the important thing is again about the incentives. Apple does not have a business model that would make them benefit from harvesting user data the way Facebook and Google and Twitter and so on have.
1: It's making me laugh because it's like Apple's stuff is usually so fucking expensive that luckily they don't have to sell your data because they get more than enough money from the products.
0: Exactly. And this is one of the reasons also I switched. Look, I got to the point where that $500 difference in laptop price doesn't bother me as much as the privacy difference, you know? Hmm. So, or rather with a phone more likely, you know, it's like the, so I bought the iPhone and it's the most expensive phone I've ever bought. And for sure, you could get a similarly performing, cheaper Android phone. But at this point, I'd rather pay that price difference and get the Apple product than not. And I don't care whether it's the best, you know. So, and that's a big, that's a big part. But I also have to say that two things that happened that like, because in the beginning, I was kind of tentative about it. But then the two things that happened that really got me in. And the first is, yes, these products are really nice to use. They're just nicer to use than I expected, you know. And there's just little touches. Like, like one of the things that surprised me is that, you know, once you've connected your phone, for example, to a Wi-Fi network, if you take your laptop to the same place, it will just connect. You don't have to enter the Wi-Fi password again. Or you can copy something, right? You can. I had to put in a license key somewhere. You can... You can On your laptop, you can go Control or Command-C to copy, and then you just paste on your phone, and there it is, right? (laughs) Like on an Android device, you would have to copy that, then paste it into a message to yourself in Slack or something, then open Slack on the phone, copy the thing, go to the other app, paste it there. And here it's just copy on one device, paste on the other. It's just so nice. It's like they have lots of little details like that. That that, Yeah, it kind of surprised me about how, how nice it is to use but then the other thing is they came out with this M1 chip. Mm. Yeah, I didn't hear
1: about this until you told yeah. me. And and there's a part of me that just, I don't know, man, unexplored part of me that just wants to build PCs and just is interested in yeah, hardware and stuff.
0: And look, that's, that's for sure. Like the joy of building a PC, like you can't get that with a Mac,
1: mm.
0: right? And I totally get that. That used to be a hobby of mine too. But with the M1, the M1 chip is really impressive because... It is before it was just like it was the same hardware in a in an aluminium encasing with the with the Apple logo on it and a a super inflated price tag. So it's like, well, I'm not that interested in that. But now they actually have their own chip and this chip is absolutely trouncing everything in its price category. So I also have to say, like, just from a from a geeky side of me, I'm like so excited about seeing some progress in this space because for so long, like Every new generation of processor is kind of just boring. Like nothing interesting has happened with processors in a long time. And now Apple come along, they make their own thing, and it's actually good. I'm like, okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> Take my money. You've convinced yeah. me. Yeah. But yeah, the the main thing is really like the the privacy thing. And it's it's one of those things. Like I know it's hard to understand. You know, and it, m- it might sound like I'm like making excuses, like yeah, yeah, you just want fancy Apple stuff, right? And this is your excuse, but it's like, it's hard. It really is something. I I've read so much about this. I'm so aware of the problems around privacy. I really feel like this almost physical discomfort. Hmm. You know, like so. For example, on on an old phone, I still have WhatsApp. And every once, like once a month or so, I open it up and I message some of my friends and I'm like, have you switched yet? <laughs> you know, Because there's some people I want to stay in touch with, but that's where they are. And like every time I use it, I'm just like, oh, that's, it's just, it's gross. There's something really gross about using the product like WhatsApp to I feel me. feel unclean. Yeah, really. It's like, yeah, I have to take a long shower <laughs> afterwards. And so for me, that is, it is just a, there's a real tangible, significant value of, working in an ecosystem of products where I feel like my data isn't just like leaking out everywhere, you know. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I've got a I've still got a Google Pixel two phone from like <laughs> Google,
0: Google knows more about you. Than I do about than, myself. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. 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 But to be honest, me too, right? Because I use their stuff for years. So I've kind of fallen off the radar, you know. So I guess they they're not that up to date on what I'm up to. Mm but oh my God, Google must have reams of data on me.
1: Yeah. Got all the wrap the sheet, the full wrap sheet on you. Yeah. yeah we can imagine having like a Google Pixel phone and then a fucking Google laptop and just being yeah. balls deep in their ecosystem. Like mm-hmm. so they just, yeah, man, it's invasive.
0: Yeah, it's gross. Also, you start using DuckDuckGo. Duck, Duck, Com is great search engine. Privacy. It's not worse than Google, in my opinion. used it for, I don't know, like two years now, I think. Almost Google. never use Google anymore. Yeah. Practical takeaway. There you go. We can be practical, even in the
1: random section. And we can uh, collect our check from Apple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: If only, dude. <laughs> <laughs> if only. Uh, you know, speaking of, like, well, I don't know which episode this will go on, but if it goes to the cult episode, like, you know. Apple is a bit of a cult, isn't it? It's like you keep paying, you keep giving them more and more money and then you talk about how great they are.
1: It's like... <laughs> Dude. Oh, shit. That, there was that uh, that hilarious video, like a news report, really long queue, you know the story, like of the queues outside Apple shops when they yeah. release a new thing. New phone came out, big long queue. This uh, kid was at the front of the, the, the queue, it must have been like 16 or something. This woman gets in, just goes to the front and was like, hey, kid, I will, uh, I'll pay you I don't know, like $800 if you allow me to, to take your place. Ooh. And she was like, be all, all cocky with the news people. Like, yeah, you know what? Well, I did that on purpose. It's a good business investment because my plan is I'm going to buy a hundred of these and I'm going to sell them on. <laughs> so then the story develops that they get access to the store. And what she wasn't aware of, that they were saying you only allowed one iPhone per person. Ah, uh, yeah. So, so she wanted to sculpt them. She wanted to take them all, yeah. and then sell them all. Yeah, yeah, but they'd already planned for that. And then this kid is there. This kid just bought. the He's like, "Oh, I got a free iPhone today." Yeah, <laughs> and nice. she was proper scowling
0: at him. He was like, "Wow, it's my lucky day today." Um, like, oh, that's that's good. Scal- scalpers are the worst. Yeah, yeah. So if I ever stand in a queue at an Apple store to get the latest whatever, I've gone too far. I know. I, 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 I would know I'm at asking that point. you. I'm asking you to intervene. On my behalf, I right. know at that
1: point you'd have gone too far. Yeah, I, I've noticed. I noticed you, you go down that path. you have taken yeah. a few steps down, and I was yeah. like, "We're watching on the team. We're, we're watching. Yeah. We're like, okay, how far is it going to go with this?" Mm. So he's got the Apple Watch. He's got the iPhone. He's got the laptop. Yeah, yeah. And now, now we've literally produced a clip promoting Apple. <laughs> yeah, no, it's bad. It's bad. But listen, listen. I didn't. I didn't get the headphones. Okay. Okay. Because they're trash. <laughs> and <laughs> But you can say that it's a moral thing. You say like, you know what, I'm not gonna go that far down the Apple yeah. rabbit hole. I didn't get the earphones. Yeah. But actually it's it's because of audio quality.
0: Yeah, they're most it's mostly because they're bad. But yeah. Um I don't know. I guess you have to you have to like forcibly remove me from Apple if I if it ever gets to that. Okay. We'll do. I All have right. your permission. <laughs> All right. Good stuff. All right. I think that covers the idea of skill uh, improvement and skill floor and ceiling. I hope that's useful. And basically, yeah, like I've explained before, it's like I think that improving your skills is basically is the most reliable way to get from where you are now to where you want to be. And that's, that's one of the reasons we talk about skill quite a lot. And so I hope this helps you in figuring out what are the most important skills you can develop and how do you develop them, you know, as effectively as possible to help you basically reach the, the kind of life and lifestyle that you want to live. I think skills are essentially the shortcut to that. Cool.
1: What you Where you are now and where you want to be, skills your skills will stand in the way.
0: Yeah, pretty much. Cool.
1: All right. Thanks again for watching, guys. And uh, yeah, subscribe to all the stuff, do all the things.